Welcome to FASD Hope, a podcast about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder through the lens of parent advocates with over 18 years of lived experience. FASD Hope provides awareness, information, and inspiration to those people whose lives have been touched by FASD. And I'm the host of FASD Hope, Natalie Vecchione. Welcome to today's episode. Today I'll be interviewing Josh Bechtel. Josh was born on November 4, 1977 in Pendleton, Oregon. He was placed in shelter care at the age of one and a half. After a series of foster placements in Pendleton, Oregon and Portland, Oregon, he was eventually adopted by a conservative Mennonite family in Estacada, Oregon. In his 20s and early 30s, he worked at a children's home in Virginia and a men's rehab in Indiana, respectively. During that time, he reconnected with his biological parents and family. He currently lives in the Akron, Ohio area and divides his time between odd jobs and expanding his creative energies in a small business he founded in 2015 called Finding My Voice Publishing and Services, inspired by the title of his memoir, Finding My Voice, A Journey in the Faith. Jesus replied, you do not understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. John 13, verse 7. Welcome to today's show. I have a wonderful guest who I'm so excited to be talking with, Josh Bechtel. Josh, thank you for being on FASD Hope. Well, thanks for inviting me. Josh and I met actually through, I believe it was a uh, Facebook FASD kind of group, and we were Actually, Josh was just mentioning how he was an author and how he's he shared his stories, print, and a little bit about his journey. And I shared with Josh that I podcast and would love to talk to him about his journey and things that he's learned along the way. And so Josh has graciously agreed to be on FASD Hope, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So Josh, let's start from the beginning. That's a good place. That's a good place to start. Can you share with our audience a little bit about your adoption and your life journey? Mm, Okay. I was born in 1977 and my mom and dad were not married and I was placed in foster care at age one and a half. And I was born in Pendleton, Oregon. And then uh, I was at the age of six, I was adopted by year later, I was adopted by, I was taken in by a Mennonite family in Estacada, Oregon, who adopted me when I was 10 years old. So as when they adopted me, fetal alcohol, whatever, that was not even a term back in 85 or 86, 87. They didn't even, it wasn't even, it wasn't the term. All I knew was that my mom and dad were alcoholics and that they but I was kind of a, instinctively, I knew I was kind of a messed up kid. Well, I was told I was a messed up kid. So I was, when I, by the time I was adopted at age 10, it was predicted by medical doctors and the psychiatrist or two that I was taken to that, yeah, you're going to be institutionalized. You're going to be this. It's like, um, so there was, I kind of was raised by conservative Mennonites who, they believed spare the rods, spoil the child. And so there was like, uh, so they, that's how they beat the foolishness out of me, so to speak. So that's the beginnings of that story. So you endured a lot in your 
in your childhood and in your adolescence. And that really, I'm sure will resonate with quite a few of our listeners because we now know, you and I now know that FASD is a brain-based diagnosis mm-hmm. and, and what people may see as behaviors are actually symptoms. Uh, moving along, how old were you when either you were diagnosed with an FASD or they told you you had an That's, FASD? Uh, there's an there's a interesting backstory to that because okay. I was, like I said, this was back in the 80s when... Right, nobody really... Nobody, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't the subject. Right. So right. with background, I didn't know that there was a term or even a condition until I was 19. Okay. I was 19 and 20 when there was like uh, the parents in my the home church where I grew up, they had a meeting, the heads, of the, the heads of homes had a meeting with a lady from Portland by the name of Diane Melvin, who, yes. was, who was a, she had, they asked her to come out to our church to wow. help them, to help them figure out how to deal with the, the children of a, of another family. This particular mom and dad the dad was an alcoholic blah blah all, all the rest so it's there diane came out to talk to the heads of the families about this particular family who i will not name obviously right. Right. and so after the meeting mom and dad a couple of days later said hey this lady was talking about you know this uh, fasd something that uh, um, it's it says you it's like uh, it's like they during that meeting began putting pieces together like that right this right. might be jo- what's what's wrong with Josh so that was nineteen and so back a backstory behind that I my eyes periodically bothered me for years you know we had good old fluorescent lights in school <laughs> and so my eyes would be throbbing from the light and I'd be I'd complain about how badly they'd throb so one day they it took me to, to a children's eye doctor and they did the exam they did the exams and basically I had 20-20 vision but my eyes give me splitting headaches because right. I was so they they shooed me out they think that they thought that I was making it up right after Diane I, I don't know if you're allowed to say her name or not but actually so backstory on our end diane malvin wrote literally she wrote the book about fasd right she, she did she you did. know she she wrote trying differently that was my, rather that was than my, harder that was my mirror that was like oh man yeah. it was yes. like a mirror it was like oh my gosh i can deal with this <laughs> you you actually met you met the trailblazer of FASD, Diane Malbin, who not only did she write the book about FASD, which almost all of us in in the community of FASD read, but she also started Facets, which is Mm -hmm. a training based on the book. And Mm -hmm. she really was one of the first people to acknowledge that prenatal alcohol exposure of any kind results in brain-based differences and diagnoses. And not just brain-based, but the way you're explaining your visual, the visual issues you had, mm-hmm. there's over 400 comorbid diagnoses that go with having an FASD. And, and 
vision and visual processing and visual perception, you know, is included in that, you know, because that's the tip of that's for me, Percy, that's only the tip of the iceberg. Yeah. One of the upfront things that I live with is the fact that I don't drive and that people have been like, uh, well, why don't you? Well, there's this whole long spiel, but at the end of it, they're like, uh, you look fine to me. Uh, yeah. yeah, I get it. It's like I've li- I'm have i 43 years old and I live with, uh, well, you could if you wanted. I, I've, here's one of the things I've lived with. This is probably getting ahead of conversation. But That's okay. That's okay. One of the things I live with is you do so well, blah, here and here and here and here. Right. And here. Why can't you? It's like, well, um, because I... Um, I've tried and I can't. It's like I, yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I've tried and I can't. And basically, at that point, the conversation gets frustrating. So it's basically I've tried to explain it right. through. And basically, there's some people that are like, uh, "Well, y'all." Which we know for for anyone who's listening, and I've experienced that as a parent of a now young adult with an FASD, where we've had our son try different things, driving included, and. Sometimes he's able to do it and sometimes he can't. Or if there's other activities, just sometimes he just flat out can't do it. And again, it's you bring up this amazingly valid point that we need to share with people is that if you're asking someone who has any type of FASD or for that matter, any type of brain-based diagnosis, so autism, ADHD, any, any type of brain-based diagnosis, if you're asking them if they can do something and they can't, then that's something that just needs to be accepted and move on. You know, I think that trying to, to have somebody, you know, do it again or explain, can you explain why you can't do that? Mm-hmm. You know, we wouldn't ask someone who had a mobility disability to explain why they couldn't walk or someone who has a visual impairment. Well, why can't you read this, you know, seeing something. So I think that as a society, if you're talking with someone and they're not able to do something, then it needs to be accepted that, there may be, or there usually is a brain-based diagnosis behind that, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm just so thankful to be speaking with you, Josh, because this is a really valid point that people need to understand is that if you have a brain-based diagnosis, whether it be FASD or any other type of diagnosis, if you're asking someone to do something and they're not able to do it, and Diane Malvin says this in her book, it's not because they won't do it or they they don't want to do it. It's because they can't do it. So I appreciate your sharing that. So you were about 19 in your late teens, early 20s. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about what kind of accommodations did you start making for yourself? That's uh, interesting. Uh, when? Yeah, let's Everybody. talk. Let's talk about how, or the development of your. You know, how did co- how did accommodations look like when you were in your early twenties, and how do how do they look now? Well, let's um, put it this way: when I was a kid, um, quite frankly, I'm trying to scroll back. Since it wasn't a, it, since it wasn't an item, there were none. Right. Right. Except for maybe, uh, okay, Josh, you're uh, you're all over the place. You're being hyperactive. Go call, go read a book and calm down. 
which, which basically that's kind of what I was told. I was quite fairly hyperactive as a kid. Um, which we know but, is a primary characteristic of having an FASD. Mm-hmm. So I was like, so the main thing was, uh, well, we've got a, you know, we lived out in the country. So uh, like you guys, it sounds like, um, so go, uh, you know, we had a fairly large yard to mow. So basically I spent afternoons mowing yards after, after school, of course. And during the summertime, it was, I don't know if you guys, I don't know if you know what the plant tansy is, if you have tansy and thistles in North Carolina, but we, it was kind of, it was a noxious weed. So we basically had to, I spent summers pulling tansy and cutting thistles basically to get me out of the house. <laughs> that's, that's, I, I laugh, but that's part of what it was. And so um, as far as accommodations, yeah, there, if there were accommodations, I don't know, didn't know what they were. I mean, but um, after 1920, um, first of all, I, as soon as I found out about this, that book by Diane, I ordered it, got a hold of it, and I read it, and I, it's it like, oh my gosh, no wonder, um, for instance, writing is the only way that I can logically put my thoughts into order, because when I'm writing, nobody's going to interrupt me if I pause because the words aren't flying out like most of everybody around me. Like my family that I was adopted into, they're, a lot of them are, they're, they're quite a verbal bunch and I'm not particularly unless I'm asked to uh, speak up, say something, otherwise basically. And so my safe space was in my room with the door shut, reading a book. And uh, so um so writing became one of your, what I like to call one of your superpowers. Well, because it, I, 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 was, it, I discovered that it apparently was. And quite ironically, I'm not even sure how to say this. It was almost forbidden of me. Writing was one of the few things that I could do you know, in my mind kind of well, not right. very, but kind of. And right. so basically it was pretty much shut down and I... Right buried it and then through some strange circumstances basically the writing pretty much handed back to me the uh, accommodations yeah that i've discovered is okay i realized through diane malman that because she said that there'd be the you know you could do two or three things four or five things in in succession and like the first time would be perfect the second time perfect the third time would be a disaster the fourth time would be almost a disaster and the sixth time I was like she describes that in her books and I basically I was like okay that's I learned to tell when that was going to start happening like okay um pause I had better do some I'd better um give myself a timeout because if I did it the next couple of times you know I have to give myself space between successes Another thing is realizing that this one thing that I pieced, I literally pieced this together on my own um, is like, okay, um, this sounds ironic to my, my upbringing, but it's true. It's like, don't punish myself if I have a, have a mini tantrum. Right. 
allow myself to experience a frustrated mini tantrum. I basically let myself vent. It's like, and it's like, okay, Josh, we can deal with, we basically, the adult me says, okay, I'm not going to punish you for this. There's a issue that's, okay, so what is the issue and why is it such a huge deal? So basically being able to talk myself through it. I don't do it perfectly, but I'm learning to like, okay, um, I'm learning to pause and let myself be rational. Another way is my my emotional age is catching up to my chronological Chronological. age, which I felt that slowly evening out. I'm really glad you're bringing this up, Josh, because we know, especially in adolescence and teen years, the gap widens between emotional developmental age versus chronological age you know there's a big gap especially because expectations when you're a teenager and young adult you know there's so many expectations but i'm glad that you're saying that because you're you know you're in your 40s and not only have you learned how to i think amazingly be able to let yourself experience you know an emotional you know, meltdown, but talk yourself through that. That requires so much insight and so much introspect on your part, but also to, to reinforce that in your forties, you've noticed that the, the gap is getting less because you have developed coping mechanisms. It sounds like for, you know, if these kinds of things happen, if meltdowns happen, it sounds like you are accommodating. You have learned how you can help yourself accommodate to get through. I like to call it your, your emotional thermostat. You know, if your emotions are really high and the thermostat's really high, (laughs) it sounds like, it sounds like you have learned how to um, to reset the thermostat a little bit. And sometimes that takes time, you know, like you said, just letting yourself almost have a pause or a timeout. And I'm so glad you're sharing this because this is a great accommodation that individuals with an FASD who may be listening, but also for family members and loved ones to acknowledge that if your emotional thermostat is high, being able to what you're doing, either talk yourself through it, which is an amazing accommodation or giving yourself time or space, or also knowing that as you've gotten older, you've been able to regulate yourself better when it comes to your emotional thermostat. I really appreciate you sharing this with us, Josh, because this is a big accommodation you're talking about. You know, I, I, I was thinking of, you know, like, okay, you know, I, you know, sensory kind of things, but you're, you're talking about a really big emotional accommodation. Yeah. So how about accommodating for, yeah, some of your sensory, either things that you um, avoid or things that, you know, you may. Okay. Interesting. How about that? I, I make a joke that I don't wear sunglasses because it's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a segue into I wear sunglasses. I wear prescription glasses but in the sunshine, in the bright sunlight. I, right. I quite often wear sunglasses or, and I, I joke not because it's cool. Well, okay. It is cool, <laughs> but I don't wear them just because they're cool. It's because even like normal sunlight can sometimes, you know, just like a regular clear 
clear blue sky day like today it's it is here it's like sunglasses i mean shade i i sometimes need to have dark glass dark lenses just to keep my and then sometimes i i've noticed my eyes go kind of in cycles Mm -hmm. that my you know the, the lenses of my glasses are actually made to force my eyes to focus together this is kind of a yeah layman's science terms which yeah. is, i've had to explain this millions of times so individually my eyes i have basically 2020 vision which is weird but my of course i have i deal with astigmatism and some of the other stuff so my eyelid my eyeglasses have prisms Right. there's a prism in one lens and there's uh i think in both and i've there's like uh it refracts and re- reflects away the light. It's like it's a complicated thing. It's basically to block the light away from your eyes. It's a interesting, complicated prescription. That's one of my, what was the word you use? One of the accommodations. accommodations. Basically, if somebody as a kid, as a teenager, whatever, finds out that they have FASD and you're at the eye doctor, it'll embarrass you to high heaven for about 60 seconds, but tell them. The eye doctors that I've been fortunate enough to have, they'll figure that in and they'll come up with, sometimes miraculously, the thing that you need it's like that's how it happened to me the first time quite honestly I was like and that's how I discovered that I needed to use progressive lineless bifocals it's like right. yeah. you're, sh- you're sharing that with them it was able to help piece mm-hmm. together your eyes required oh yeah yeah mental list of uh I probably have a lot of accommodations for myself that I'm not really at the moment aware of but uh right. my my memory requires me to if i want to remember something i have to write it down and have it with me and basically writing stuff down I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's extremely simple and it's mostly it has a sidebar when i was a kid my adopted dad would always say you need to write that down okay i will i wouldn't and i'd forget so finally right. it's like Write it down. Right. Okay, I'll write it down. And I've, it has saved me quite a few times. <laughs> so like, that's that's a great accommodation right there. Is If you need to remember something, which we know having an FASD affects your memory and affects your memory retrieval. So some days you're able to retrieve information and some days you may not be able to. Writing that down and having that visual reminder is a great accommodation. And something else that come that comes to me as we're talking is that, uh, of course, speaking of memory, growing up, we had to do lots of Bible memory, verbal, like recite lots and lots of Bible verses and that kind of thing. And in retrospect, it dawned on me that I was able to, you know, basically in my head, memorize several verses at a time. So I discovered slowly that if I don't at least mouth the words as I'm trying to recite them, don't even have to say it out loud, just well, mouth the words. That seems to help. That's a wonderful accommodation too, because you are visually learning, but you're 
through mouthing the words, you're giving your brain another opportunity to learn, you know, almost through muscle memory of, yeah. of, of speaking, of silently speaking those words. That's a, that's a great accommodation. And there's one, there's one more that comes to mind. It's, it's common knowledge that the brain is two hemispheres that have bridges between the two halves. That's layman's terms, but that's, and then of course, some of us don't, our brains are basically all one lump. Right. Talk, we're, we're talking family here, basically. So, right. um, so it's, we're, it's all molded. It's basically kind of melted into one thing that there's no bridges. And right. so you have to create your own bridge, which somebody told me about the simple crossing your fingers together, like a kind of like when you're doing your praying. Mm-hmm. And then just basically semi-squeezing your hand, your fingers to, and your hands together helps, creates the bridge that um, helps with completing the thought bridge right. process. And so I found myself doing that lots and lots of times. That's a few of the accommodations. There are so, well, second nature. Right. It's like, um, let me, to try to describe it, it's like, well. Um, right. Uh, and- Oh, oh yeah, I do. I do do this. I do this. It's like, oh, um, so it's kind of like it did. It took a minute for, for the list to come together. Like, <laughs> um, so there's a list. But, the, and you know what, you bring up a really valid point, Josh, is that when we do accommodations and we, when we've done them for so long, it is second nature. We just, you know, we don't really think about it. It's just something we do because mm-hmm. we know that it's going to help regulate us. So that's a really great point you're bringing that when we practice accommodations, the more we practice them, they become second nature and and the more regulated they help us become. So I I really appreciate you sharing that with us. There is one other thing that kind of comes to mind. It's not, it's coming back to the, you know, the sort of the general not specific the kind of general kind of things like i'm a i'm an introvert by nature i like my quiet i i thrive on being by myself to a maybe to a fault and i've had enough life experiences to have figured out that there are times that too much of a good thing in my case solitude becomes a bad thing and so it's like i'm aware and i have just as soon be by myself i have to force myself to be around people uh, i go okay i don't feel like being around i don't feel like talking to people but i kind of know i need to at least know that there's people around i go i go to a coffee shop so a coffee shops for me is a fairly safe hangout place because you know there's people around you that you basically will not bug you they'll right at a library you know they will not bug you either and basically since i do since i utilize public transportation around town here basically there's times it's when i have a free day and i know my way around to the some of my favorite places i, I basically tell myself to what on the surface feels like wasting time and okay pop the bus go the spend a half day being loosely around people doing your basically get your mind get your mind off of yourself Josh. being around people and then but and then by the time you get back home you'll usually the slump is over oh and by the way 
since I live by myself, this is a real world ad admission that since I, I live by myself, that sometimes I forget that I need to eat. And I have to basically have to remind myself, hey, Josh, you, you know, if I'm really involved in getting, you know, mm -hmm. if I'm really into something create creatively or something, it's like I will literally forget to eat until I'm like, oh, man, I'm getting a little bit lightheaded. What's yeah. the, yeah. What's the, what's, oh, shucks, I haven't eaten since yeah. seven this morning. And it's, you know, at the time it might be about three or four. So it's like, oh my God, yeah. Josh, um, hello, go find something to eat. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, uh, yeah, that's a more um, kind of random answer to that previous question. So um, yeah, that's my list. That is a great list, Josh. I, I have to tell you, you really covered a lot of different areas, especially, you know, talking about making yourself just be around people, but in a safe way. That is an amazing accommodation. You know, it's, it's almost like you're acknowledging that if I'm by myself too much, then I know that's not going to be a good thing. So you're making yourself, you're identifying a trigger actually, you know, mm -hmm. which is being by yourself for too, too long and then saying, okay, well, this is my comfort. You know, this is what I'm, I'm, I'm able to do. So you're making right. that accommodation. And then the last one about food, that's so true because we know actually science has showed us that in FASD, many individuals um, and parents really find this challenging with their kids, but many individuals with FASD have a difficulty in regulating when to eat. Their brain doesn't let them know when it's time to eat, you know, especially mm -hmm. if they're very involved in an activity. Um, you know, we have experienced that with our son uh -huh. too, where, where he just like, doesn't realize it's time to eat until he feels like he's going to pass out because his blood sugar is so low, you know, and that's actually very common with brain-based diagnoses. So I really just appreciate as a mom, I really appreciate your insight. It, it really is just helpful and I'm going to thank you frequently for <laughs> throughout this conversation, because what you're sharing with us is, is just so important. Let's talk about strengths. Uh -huh. We know that writing is, is one of your strengths and you've identified that. Just tell us about your strengths and your writing and how it's helped you in your journey as an adult having an FASD. Well, my writing, since it's my first acknowledged, it's the strength that I most identify with. It's sort of a survival. It's, it's kind of been how I've survived. So it sort of seems or feels strange to call it a strength. So um, I've sometimes had to make the mental adjustments to, okay, it's okay, sure, me being able to write better than a lot of my friends has sort of been an interesting it's put me it's put me in some interesting quandaries every once in a while it's like uh, I you know if if I could talk as well as I am told that I write I'd be like man I would be able to I'd feel a good deal more confident that's me that's that's Josh talking it's like I, I get intimidated by people, believe it or not, who can talk 
better than I feel like I can, which is a sidebar that probably most of some of the people that are listening to this can understand. It's like, I do not feel like I am communicating as well as I'm going to be told that I'm communicating. So that's sort of the how the wheels in the brain go. It's like, as I'm talking, my brain's going, Josh, you're messing up. <laughs> and of course, consciously, I know that it's probably not the case, but it's my, so writing basically probably is a way that I slow my brain down. Analyzing it, that's probably what's subconsciously happening. That's a great way to describe that, Josh, is, is that writing is helping you slow your thoughts down so that you can get them on paper the way you want to say them. That is a great way to phrase that. My art, which I kind of accidentally stumbled into, is sort of the strange sort of abstract art, which um, again, art is one of the things that kind of drawing calms me down. I'm just very impressed listening to you and how that really on your own, you know, especially after meeting Diane Melvin when you were younger and then reading her book, which again, her book is one of the books we list on our FASDHope.com website as a, as a reading list book. So many people we've referred, you know, her book to. So I just appreciate your sharing how writing has helped in your journey. As we start to wrap up our conversation, mm -hmm. there are family members, individuals that have an FASD who may be listening to your story. As an adult with an FASD, what's a piece of advice that you have for them? Like uh, someone say, who's my son's age and who is, is journeying more into adulthood? Both questions are fascinating and sort of difficult, but you're not as bad as you feel like you are in the middle of this mess. You're not, you're, you're not as bad as your behavior. I mean, you're, it's probably normal to blame yourself. It's not your fault. And even, even though the adults in your life seem to not even want to understand, want to know about what you're going through, if you can bring yourself to tell an adult that you trust what's actually going on in your brain, your friend already knows he or she's different. I don't know if it's possible to treat your, I don't know if it's possible for you to treat your friend like you'd want to be treated if you felt like the weird outsider, but um, be kind. I think that's great advice. And especially, as you said, to treat that individual the way you would want to be treated. I, in my mind, went to the 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 year old. Yeah. Kid is like, okay, um, break it down. Really? Yeah. It's like, okay. So there's sort of a vulnerable feeling yeah. question. It's like a vulnerable kind of reply. So I no, no. Hope, that's how, hope that's somewhat helpful. <laughs> Definitely. Definitely. As we end this very insightful and very open conversation about living with FASD, we like to end our episodes with what 
I affectionately call a hope takeaway? Um, this is gonna, this feels simplistic, but um, uh, you'll live. You won't feel like, you know, in the middle of it. You, you know, if we could play with the concept of time travel, future you is like, you'll, you'll survive. It's okay to need help. In retrospect, I'd tell myself, um, it, it's okay to admit that you need help. It's almost cliche, but it's, it's okay. It's okay to not be okay. Yeah. It's- no, that's, that's very, very insightful because we have to think out of the box when it comes to our lives and having a life that is, is different is okay just like you said, and it's fine. I, and I really appreciate that advice, especially for families of kids or families of teens or young adults like ours that have an FASD. Mm. I really appreciate your advice. Josh, thank you so much for being on FASD Hope today. Well, thank you again. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Uh, And I am going to list Josh's contact information for his business. You can find Josh at Finding My Voice. And that web address is listed in our program notes, but it's findingmyvoice.us. And then if you'd like to reach out to Josh and just uh, get in touch with him, I will be listing Josh's email in our program notes in today's episode. Josh, again, thank you so much. Your story is important. Thank you one more time. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it too. And for all of you listening out there, thanks for tuning in today and we'll catch you next time. Thanks again for listening to FASD Hope with Natalie Vecchione. If you like our show and want more information, check out FASDHope.com or please leave us a five-star rating and follow us on Podbean, iTunes, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Make sure you join us next week. And remember to be informed, take care, and always have hope.